Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Pushkin. Imagine there's a place in our world where the known things go. A library, a cabinet of curiosities. Bookshelves, filing cabinets, old reels of film. The problem is, my dogs have gotten in here. Slobbered all over my copies of Charles Darwin's books. Completely chewed the cover off my first edition of the story of Dr. Doolittle. What are they thinking, these dogs? Oh, well, there they go. Out the door. Get out. Out. I'm going to follow them. Over the threshold. To the dog park. Good morning. The dog park. We're out every day. Today, it's with my producer, Ben. And of course, my two Great Danes, Greta and Daisy. It's 7 a.m. on a cold, icy winter morning at a park the size of a soccer field but white with a blanket of snow. If you've ever been to a dog park, then you know the drill, the whole scene, gossiping with people about their dogs. Who's that dog? That's Stevie. Stevie doesn't like the ice or snow. People are doing the usual things, standing around, handing out treats, trying to read the minds of dogs. How do you know he doesn't like the ice or the snow? Um... His owner just says, like, he just won't walk on it. Like, it's been a problem. <laughs> Hi, Stevie! Hi! Hello! Hi, goodness! Hello! Hello! Hi, Steve. What do you think of the microphone? The smartest dog at the park is a little red-brown foxy-looking retriever named Isla. Isla! Isla! Can I give her a treat? Every morning, rain, snow, or sleet, my dogs try to steal Isla's tennis ball. 
sometimes they succeed. But Isla, she's really restrained. Yeah, Isla's very smart. Isla knows <laughs> she can't take Daisy's ball because Daisy, Daisy would just need assistance with her distress. Isla had figured out that there's a reason to be worried about both of my dogs. Daisy, because she's so emotionally fragile, and Greta, because she's so sneaky. She's learning that, but, but, but Greta does not know that she should not eat Isla's balls. Because Greta, well, maybe Greta knows, but she doesn't care. How do I know what Greta knows? I don't, but I wish I did. Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know things and why it's so hard lately to know anything at all. I'm Jill Lepore. This episode, how do animals know things? And why is it so hard for us to know how much they know? And why it matters that we try. All over the world, for tens of thousands of years, people have believed that animals have minds and souls. This was a belief once so widely held that it amounted to common knowledge, nearly universal knowledge. Only very recently, around the beginning of the scientific revolution in the West, did animals come to be thought of as essentially machines. Lately, though, that's been changing, as the study of animal cognition undergoes a revolution. Meanwhile, the rest of us, just regular people, we all have our theories about animal minds. Do you think that you understand Isla? Uh, sometimes she has fuzz brain and I don't, but <laughs> generally speaking, I think she's... She's normally pretty clear about what she wants. <laughs> what is what? How, what leads to fuzz brain? Fuzz brain. She just uh, sits there and stares off into the world. <laughs> she's actually just contemplating very deeply. Yeah, that might be the case. Yeah. Isla is a dog that was bred for smarts. So they're like one of the smallest little retrieving family, and they're meant for like duck hunting. Huh. They go truffle hunting, things like that. She knows how to get things for people, sort of like higher level fetch. If yeah. you refer to something in the house, does she, like, know? Yeah, she's learned, like, stick, ball, toy box, um, like, a lot of the basics like that. Um, whether or not she always listens is mostly in her mood. But <laughs> it is so tempting to ventriloquize for dogs. I do it all the time. I talk to them, and then I fill in their responses. Like, the other day, it was raining, and I wanted to let Greta out, but Greta was all, I want to go out, but not until it stops raining. Or at least that's what I said on her behalf when I was answering my own question. And when I listen back to myself doing this, I think of Dr. Doolittle, the children's book character, who can talk to the animals. Or more to the point, he can listen to them. If people ask me, can you speak rhinoceros? I'd say, of course I Rex Harrison played Dr. Doolittle in a musical from 1967. Eddie Murphy's played him, Robert Downey Jr., but the first Dr. Doolittle book was published more than a century ago. To try to understand what people know about what animals know, I figured I'd better start with Dr. Doolittle. Sorry, pups, but we've got to leave the dog park and go somewhere else far away and long ago, to Flanders Fields on the Western Front in 1915, in the middle of unutterable devastation. A million soldiers died or were wounded or disappeared in Flanders Fields, fighting in the Great War, in the trenches, in the muck. John McRae, a Canadian doctor, soldier, and poet, he was there. A year later, he memorialized all that death in his poem, 
in Flanders Fields. In Flanders Fields the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly scarce heard amid the guns below. But it wasn't just a million men who died. Untold numbers of animals died in Flanders Fields. And Dr. John McRae loved animals, especially horses. McRae had sailed to Europe in 1914 in a military convoy with 30,000 men and 8,000 horses, including his own horse, Bonfire, bound for the front. McRae mentioned Bonfire in letters home to his sister. It was as if Bonfire could communicate. McRae wrote, I wish you could meet him. He puts his lips to your face and gives a kind of foolish waffle. McRae marched with 900 men and 600 horses to Flanders Fields. The ensuing slaughter, the suffering, it was unfathomable. The staggering, needless loss of life, the maiming, the killing, and the anguished, tortured suffering of all those horses. Britain alone lost half a million horses in the war. One horse was killed for every two men. They died in the fighting, or they died of starvation, they died of infection and of exhaustion. They fell into mines, they were shot. They died of poison gas, terrified. There is nothing I hated more than that hoarse scream, McRae wrote home. Bonfire's leg got infected. McRae was there to treat men, but he began mending animals. Somewhere along the way, he acquired a dog. He wrote, he ran to me and pressed his head hard against my leg. He named him Fleabag. He wrote his poem, which went on to become the best-known poem of the First World War. And McRae became the war's best-known poet. Then in 1918, he contracted pneumonia and meningitis and died before peace came. At his funeral, Bonfire followed the casket, carrying in his stirrups McRae's empty boots. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders' fields. I can't say that anyone's ever made this claim before, but I'm pretty sure Dr. John McRae was the inspiration for the character of Dr. John Doolittle, a character who was created by another soldier at Flanders Fields, a Brit named Hugh Lofting. Lofting served in the Irish Guards, and he too wrote and spoke about animals, just the same way McRae had. Certain horses that were attached to your own company, you became very fond of. It upset Hugh Lofting that the horses were left to die in Flanders Field. There was very little you could do. Nearly all the horses that were injured had to be shot. If we were as far behind in medicine for ourselves as we were apparently for our beasts of burden, we would go around shooting all of our men. Lofting was supposed to be writing letters home from the front to his very little children. But what could he possibly write about? Everything was horrible. So instead... He began drawing pictures and writing his children stories about animals. Here are some animals playing Ring a Ring of Roses. Peter Piglet, Timothy Turtle, Frederick Fish, Daniel Dog, Miss Catherine Cat, Miss Deborah Duck, Miss Millicent Mouse, Master Teddy Bear, and Squire Squirrel. They have all been to the donkey's birthday party and have been enjoying themselves very much. 
Meanwhile, at the front, watching those horses suffer in the field, he kept thinking about them. And then it occurred to me that, of course, to treat a horse properly, we would have to have horse language. And then it occurred to me that, of course, to be a good animal doctor required a very much higher order of intelligence than it did to be a human doctor. In one of Lofting's letters home, he invented a fictional character, a man. The story of Dr. Doolittle. Once upon a time, many years ago, when our grandfathers were little children, there was a doctor, and his name was Doolittle. The name, well, Doolittle was Lofting's nickname for his son Colin, who was lazy. Doolittle, get it? But the character, he, I'm pretty sure, was inspired by John McRae, M.D. The first patient Dr. Doolittle treats is a horse who's going blind in one eye. The doctor gives him spectacles. I think Bonfire would have liked that. Hugh Lofting was wounded and left the service. He moved with his family to Killingworth, Connecticut, a little farming town where he kept writing about Dr. Doolittle. He lived in a little town called Puddleby on the marsh. All the folks, young and old, knew him well by sight. In 1920, Lofting published a book, The Story of Dr. Doolittle, the first in a long series. One day, Dr. Doolittle's parrot, Polynesia, scolds the doctor. He's a medical doctor, not a veterinarian, remember, about how stupid people are. People make me sick. They think they're so wonderful. The world has been going on now for thousands of years, hasn't it? And the only thing in animal language that people have learned to understand is that when a dog wags his tail, he means, I'm glad. I happen to have a very good friend who writes children's books and who lives in a little farming town in Connecticut, just like Hugh Lofting. Her name's Elise Broach. She's magic with animals, actually. I believe she is my dog's very favorite person. Hi. Oh, it's been so long. This is Ben. Nice hey, to meet you. So I asked Elise if she'd be willing to join me and Ben on a search for Dr. Doolittle. Because Lofting wound up publishing nearly a dozen Doolittle books in his lifetime, and I wondered if there wasn't some magic about the town of Killingworth that had helped Lofting, an MIT-trained civil engineer, hold on to the belief that animals have minds and souls. Truman. She had a boxer growing up. And, you oh, know, he wow. Oh, yeah, he's boxer. a boxer. He's Mr. Hands. <laughs> he has his little handsy um, approach to things. Yeah, so she <laughs> loves boxers. Oh, good. Oh, that's so good. That I've known Elise forever. We go on writing retreats with our friend Jane. We walk in the woods with our dogs and talk about the books we're writing. I don't know anybody who's thought more carefully about children's stories involving talking animals than Elise. My favorite of Elise's books is called Masterpiece. It's about a boy, James, and a beetle named Marvin. There's a chapter book series, too, based on the same characters. In one story, they go to the country with Marvin's cousin, Elaine, another beetle. They go to a town just like Killingworth. Later on, I asked Elise to read a little bit of the story. Elaine and Marvin sit on the rail of the fence in the warm sun, watching the animals. Isn't this nice, Marvin? Elaine asks. Don't you think it would be fun to live here? All around them is the country, the big fields, the rushing creek, fences and trees and wide blue sky. It's so different from the city. It is quiet. It is green. It is full of animals, not people. 
In Elise's books, Marvin and Elaine, the Beatles, can understand everything James, the boy, says. But James can't understand them. So my point was just that I wanted kids to look at all Beatles and think, oh, you know, they may be understanding what I say, and they may have these rich family relationships, and, you know, they may be afraid, or the way that animals actually are. Um, So I didn't want to have kids think, oh, that was just a magic beetle. I wanted them to be able to see the world, you know what I mean? Like all animals, they have this, exactly. Our first stop was the Killingworth Public Library. Elise and I talked to one of the librarians, Tammy Eustace. I asked her if there was anything about the town that made it the kind of place you might want to live if you were in the business of writing stories about animals. I think it's very much the place. I've read a lot of the the history books, history essays, and people are always writing about their farm animals or, or you know, being even being on social media now. Everybody is posting pictures of their chickens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a dog gets lost and the town turns out. Mm-hmm. to try and find the dog or the cat. They've, mm-hmm. they've so grown so much. Dr. Doolittle would be proud of what's happened here. <laughs> yes. I'd hoped the library might have some of Hugh Lofting's stuff, or a statue, something. They didn't. But it turns out that Tammy, who didn't grow up here, is known for her way with animals. And everybody actually called me Dr. Doolittle <laughs> in, in college. That was my nickname. So, <laughs> Small world. We got back in the car and headed for the Killingworth Historical Society. I wondered if maybe they would have Lofting's papers, diaries, photographs, something. It's housed in a 19th century farmhouse. So sweet. Unfortunately, they did not have Hugh Lofting's papers. But... These are his hats. (laughs) These beautiful... Uh, Are they silk? Yeah, they are. They're, uh, you know, I think this is... uh, They had Hugh Lofting's top hats. And the curator also showed us a binder full of lofting memorabilia that he'd collected over the years, including a photo of a historical marker that used to be out in the front of lofting's old house. It says, Dr. Doolittle's house built 1761, owned in the 1920s by Hugh Lofting, author of the children's book series. It was here that his stories came to life and his animals learned to talk. Lofting's old house. I figured maybe there'd be something there, tucked away in an attic. One more stop. On the drive, Elise and I got to talking more about animals and children's books. There's a distinction, I think, in children's literature between the books that are entirely an animal world, um, you know, like the Beatrix Potter books, or um, I'm trying to think of other examples. Well, you know, honestly, it goes back to like Aesop's fables, right? Where it's just an animal world that is animated by human emotions or human values or whatever it is. And then there are these other stories that involve human-animal relationships. Animal fables, stories about talking animals, go back to antiquity. But the so-called golden age of children's literature ran from 1870 to 1930. Beatrix Potter, A.A. Milne, that whole late, late Victorian sort of twee sensibility. All of that, which includes Dr. Doolittle's stories, came out of changing ideas about animals. And this itself had to do with what scientists have been doing to animals in laboratories. So hold on to your top hat while we make a brutal Last Archive historical detour. A hard turn, not so much historically, but emotionally. After the break. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex, of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. In the 17th century, in France, the philosopher René Descartes argued that animals have no rational souls and no minds. They can't experience pain. They were basically just machines, Descartes said. Meanwhile, over in England, William Harvey dissected animals, living animals, without anesthesia. This is called vivisection. Harvey discovered the circulation of the blood, a major discovery, his experiments were brutal and cruel, but if you didn't think animals had souls or felt pain, then maybe those experiments were less cruel. Vivisection became common during the scientific revolution. Often, it was done on dogs. The experiments took hours. Sometimes it was days before the animals died. A century later, people finally started saying vivisection had to stop, partly because another philosopher came along and said, Oh yeah, Descartes, he was just entirely wrong. In the 1780s, Jeremy Bentham insisted about animals. The question is not, can they reason? Nor, can they talk? But, can they suffer? I mean, obviously they can suffer. Thus was born the animal welfare movement. In England, the first animal welfare legislation was passed by Parliament in 1822. In 1824, reformers founded the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Animal welfare advocates especially wanted to outlaw vivisection, which was still taking place. That movement was led by an Irish suffragist named Francis Power Cobb. It also, to a degree, enjoyed the support of Charles Darwin. Darwin loved dogs. He devoted a chunk of The Descent of Man to them in 1871. He wrote, It is curious to speculate on the feelings of a dog 
who will rest peacefully for hours in a room with his master or any of the family, without the least notice being taken of him. But if left for a short time by himself, barks or howls dismally. What staggered Darwin was that this love extended even to his torturer, the vivisectionist who nailed a dog to a table, cut him up, left him there all night to suffer, and went back to do more cutting in the morning. As Darwin wrote, Everyone has heard of the dog suffering under vivisection, who licked the hand of the operator. This man, unless he had a heart of stone, must have felt remorse to the last hour of his life. Darwin helped draft an anti-vivisection bill. He also testified before a parliamentary commission charged with investigating the practice. A version of that legislation passed in 1876, but it continued to be a source of debate. Americans had gotten involved by now, too, founding the American Anti-Vivisection Society in 1883, three years before Hugh Lofting was born. By the time of the First World War, when Lofting wrote those letters home from the Western Front, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was working hard to save war horses. It established a fund for sick and wounded horses. It set up horse ambulances. It built horse hospitals. Dr. Doolittle came out of all of this. When Lofting began thinking, maybe the best way to treat animals would be to learn their languages. Talk to the animals, learn their languages, maybe take an animal degree. I'd study elephant and eagle, buffalo and beagle, alligator, guinea pig, and flea. Chances are you've never read the Dr. Doolittle books. Maybe you've seen that old Rex Harrison musical, though or the lousy Eddie Murphy movies, or the Robert Downey Jr. one. Believe me, they're all terrible. But the original stories from the 1920s are full of fantastic elements, like the push-me-pull-you, a llama with a head at both ends. There are many voyages, there are many adventures. The Dr. Doolittle books are a little like superhero comics. Still, Doolittle is older than Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Those characters were created in the 1930s and 1940s. Doolittle was created in the 19-teens and 1920s. That means there's all kinds of datedness to the stories, including a lot of truly outrageously racist depictions of African and indigenous peoples. In spite of the fact that Lofting, a progressive and a pacifist who wrote for the nation, was an ardent opponent of racism and of imperialism too. In a 1924 article in The Nation, for instance, he damned race hatred and urged the writers of children's books to get away from the bigoted misrepresentation of people of different races. Back in Connecticut, Elise and I were just pulling up to the house where Lofting used to live, a yellow farmhouse with a fence out front. The house he lived in on the edge of town was quite small, but his garden was very large, and he had a wide lawn and stone seats and weeping willows hanging over. Turns out a doctor lives there now, Carolyn, an emergency room doctor. She and her son, Ben, answered the door and invited us around back for iced tea. We're going to stay outside. That's for fine. a whole multitude of reasons. Of course. That's fine. Come down to not always no. Lofting, he always had three or four dogs around at his house. Carolyn and Ben have two. Two German shepherds, rescue dogs. We could hear them inside howling. They harmonize, too. <laughs> two German shepherds. <laughs> and, um... What do you think they're trying to tell us? <laughs> they just—they want to come out. They want, they want to, to say out. hi. I would love to see him 
that would it be too no, much? They're crazy. they're crazy. I mean, they won't. They won't hurt you, but, but they're, they're, they're crazy. Yeah. I know all about those crazy dogs. Sadly, they didn't come out to join us. Carolyn hadn't known much about Doolittle when she bought the house, but the spirit of the place had been hard to resist. We what had you- a party, a big neighborhood party, and made little push me pose. <laughs> you remind me when I see them the little plastic <laughs> horses and cut them in half. Yeah. Really? And glue them together. together? Super glue their heads together. Yeah, that's so cute. He had a bus laying around still. <laughs> the house didn't come with any secret stash of Hugh Lofting's papers, but Carolyn did end up collecting a set of first editions, each illustrated by Lofting. She said she'd planned to leave them in the house, when someday she moves out. We went around the front to see the homemade painted wooden sign, a new one that Carolyn's kids had updated. My brother made this one. Um, so it says, Dr. Doolittle House, circa 1761, owned by author Hugh Lofting, 1886 to 1947. That's his uh, life. In the 1920s, this is where Dr. Doolittle came to life and learned to talk to his animals. The old one said where his animals learn to talk. <laughs> so rather, rather, than, rather than issue a correction, you just uploaded a, right. a new sign. Also. New sign altogether. <laughs> I loved that. The updating of the historical record. Correcting it. The animals didn't learn to talk to us. People learned to listen to the animals. And it's true, learning animal language was Dr. Doolittle's superpower. Not talking to them. The Dr. Doolittle stories date to the era of animal welfare, when reformers were fighting against cruelty to animals, trying to end vivisection. Today, there are different fights. It's an age of mass extinction and climate catastrophe. There are other questions to ask about humans' relationship to animals, including whether sometime soon there will be hardly any of them left. Animal cognition is like any other science. It's a means of producing knowledge, But it's also freighted with an almost existential burden, the burden of this moment. If we could understand better what animals know, would we find better ways of sharing the planet with them? Ben and I had gone to Killingworth, Connecticut, with a children's book writer, Elise Broach, to search for Dr. Doolittle, who could talk to the animals. I came away from that trip, though, Wondering what had happened to that idea, to an interest not in teaching animals to talk, but in listening to them. If I could talk to the animals, just imagine it, chatting to a chimp in chimpanzee. Imagine talking to a tiger, chatting to a cheetah. What a neat achievement that would be. Right around the time Hugh Lofting was writing the first Dr. Doolittle stories, the scientific study of animals was changing, too. In 1908, Margaret Floy Washburn published a book called The Animal Mind. She was a psychologist, and her work involved trying to imagine the minds of animals. For instance, we talk about an angry wasp, or like when we say someone is mad as a hornet. Washburn wrote, Anger in our own experience is largely composed of sensations of quickened heartbeat, of altered breathing, of muscular tension, of increased blood pressure in the head and face. The circulation of a wasp is fundamentally different from that of any vertebrate. The wasp does not breathe through its lungs. It wears its skeleton on the outside, and it has the muscles attached to the inside of the skeleton. 
What is anger like in the wasp's consciousness? We can form no adequate idea of it. Even as she was making that point, a new kind of psychology was on the rise. Behaviorism, an attempt to discipline the science of psychology, to make it more accountable to experimentation, more of a lab science. But behaviorism also had inside it an old idea, the idea that non-human animals are just machines. Behaviorists experimented. They brought animals into buildings and caged them, and essentially tortured them. Not by vivisection, but by experiments so artificial and painful and emotionally torturous that one critic said that if these experiments had been done on a person, it would be like taking a living man in a coffin, lowering him against his will into the earth and attempting to deduce normal psychology from his conduct. With this device, we can put a mild electric shock on the grid on which the rat stands. You will see that it supplies enough drive to produce a radical change in the behavior of the satiated rat. He hits the bar, the shock goes off, and he's rewarded. That approach lasted for decades into the 1970s and 1980s, right around when animal rights activists were challenging all kinds of animal testing. But I was on the hunt for something new in animal science, something Dr. Doolittle had done in fiction and Margaret Floy Washburn had tried in real life. I was interested in the kind of animal scientists who are studying how animals think and communicate. I think it's this, this left right here. See what these, this break is? Your destination is on it the says left. it's in there. The study of animal cognition is just exploding right now. So I decided to seek out one of its leading practitioners, a German scientist named Juliana Breuer, whose new book is called What Dogs Know. To meet her, I had to go to Germany, to a town I'd never been to before. Dogs, of course, are famously good at finding places, sniffing things out. I'm terrible at this. So to help me out on my trip to Germany, I took one of my kids. He's studying German. Yeah, it says it on the sign right there. Max Planck Institute for Menschheitgeschichte. Okay, und... I figured at least he could read the signs out loud. Menschheitsgeschichte. Human, yeah, human history. Yeah, that's stimmt. The Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History sits on top of a hill in the north German city of Jena. It's a cluster of buildings, sort of Walter Gropius style. Everything's connected by cobbled paths. I think I had in mind that we just follow the sound of barking, but the place was dead silent. So we tried to follow a map and read the signs using our eyes. A dog, a dog would have just sniffed this place out. Hello. Hello. Sorry, we're looking for Julian Brower, the dog lab. Oh yeah, the dog lab would be like around the corner. In this, in this building? Finally, we found it. Our clue, a dog bowl outside the door. We stepped over the dog bowl and Juliana Breuer led us inside to a glass-walled office overlooking the city. Breuer's this very no-nonsense sort of person. Jeans, pullover, short hair. She has my dream job, I kept thinking. I was pretty keen to meet her dog, but she was nowhere to be seen or heard. My dogs, if someone came to visit, there'd be no talking over their barking. This dog, unseen and unheard. Breuer's a biologist who's interested in the differences between humans and other animals. Technically, her field is comparative psychology. The idea of comparative psychology is basically to uh, find similarities and differences between humans and animals. 
and you can come from the psychological perspective, then you are usually more interested into the human. So what's special mm -hmm. uh, about the human? Why are we different from animals? And we are, obviously. Or you can also come from a more biological way of thinking just to look at the similarities and to look what um, cognitive skills do animals have and um, and uh, let's say to find the animals interesting in themselves. Breuer didn't start out studying dogs. She started out studying chimpanzees in an ape house at the Leipzig Zoo. And, and of course, they share a lot of uh, skills with us. But there are skills and, and um, where chimpanzees are really not, not good <laughs> or where, where you are surprised mm -hmm. uh, that, that they are not doing well. And, and one topic, this was a huge topic when I started, actually, was that chimpanzees do not use a human pointing gesture. If I want to show you something, a school bus, a cloud in the sky, I'll point at it and you'll look where I'm pointing. That's common knowledge, a universal human cognitive skill, a skill you'd assume chimpanzees have because they're so closely related to us. But strangely enough, chimpanzees do not do this. One day about 20 years ago in that zoo in Leipzig, Breuer and her dissertation advisor, the whole lab, they're all talking about this. And another graduate student says, yeah, but my dog can do that. <laughs> so they started testing dogs. And yeah, with dogs, you point at something, they look where you point. No problem. But then it turned out that really even hand-reared wolves cannot do it as, as good as dogs. So mm -hmm. dogs are special. A laboratory in Hungary at the very same time came up with that same result. I think with that paper, the view on dogs changed a lot. Because before, I mean, my biology professor would say, oh, dogs they are um, some, somehow artificial, strange creatures, mm -hmm. and they are not as uh, intelligent like wolves. So mm -hmm. wolves are the real animals and dogs are something mm -hmm. in between, something strange. But then the view changed because people thought, look, the dog has a very, very uh, special niche. So the ecological niche of a dog is being with a human. Mm -hmm. And that's why dogs have evolved very, very special skills. Now, you might think if you have a dog, yeah, this isn't very surprising. I know my dog looks where I point. But you don't know that in any scientific sense. For dogs, we don't have that. We mm. have this, what you would call common knowledge. And, and, and I assume that most of this, what we can read in, in common dog books mm. is, is correct. Mm -hmm. but, but we do not have studies about it. Mm -hmm. So they started doing those studies. The more you think about that pointing situation, the more you investigate it, the more striking the finding. Breuer and other dog scientists around the world are writing a kind of code book, decoding the behavior of dogs. There are a thousand reasons to do this research, but the biggest is dogs are the first animal humans ever domesticated. Why, out of all possible animals, did humans domesticate dogs first? One theory has it that it's because dogs have such an incredibly sophisticated sense of smell, and we have such a worthless one. It's a thing humans needed. But we do not know much about the sense of smell. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sometimes really amazing. What's funny to me is... Dr. Doolittle had this all figured out, at least in his imagination. My favorite scene in all the books is when the doctor is talking with his dog, Jip, about what it's like to smell like a dog. Then Jip went up to the front of the ship and smelled the wind, and he started muttering to himself. Tar, Spanish onion, kerosene oil, wet raincoats, 
crushed raw leaves, rubber burning, lace curtains being washed. No, 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 my mistake. Lace curtains hanging out to dry, and foxes, hundreds of them, cups. And can you really smell all those different things in this one wind? Asked the doctor. Why, of course, said Jim. And those are only a few of the easy smells, the strong ones. Any mongrel could smell those with a cold in his head. Wait now, and I'll tell you some of the harder scents that are coming on this wind. A few of the dainty ones. Then Jip closes his eyes and seems to be barely breathing, almost dreaming. Bricks, he whispered, very low. Old yellow bricks crumbling with age in a garden wall. The sweet breath of young cows standing in a mountain stream. The lead roof of a dovecote. Or perhaps a granary with the midday sun on it. Black kid gloves lying in a bureau drawer of walnut wood. A dusty road with a horse's drinking trough beneath the sycamore. Little mushrooms bursting through the rotting leaves. Okay, so that's fiction. Juliana Breuer is a scientist. She got interested in figuring out there are so many scents. How do dogs decide what to smell? I imagine being a dog entering a room and then how can I distinguish all these different uh, odors? How do I distinguish what is important to me? Breuer came up with an ingenious idea and then began experimenting. I should explain that she uses dogs, any dogs, people's pets, in her experiments. She's got a few hundred of them on call. They volunteer, they come with their owners, their owners stay for the tests. The dogs are not special genius dogs, they're just ordinary dogs. Before she explained the smelling study to me, though, she showed me how the laboratory actually works. She took us through a hallway and into the dog lab itself. Dark basement room, empty. But in the back of the room, Breuer opened a door and let out her dog, a border collie mix. What's your name? Nana. Nana? Nana? Hey! Breuer took us to another room, set up for an experiment. Yeah, so we're in a sort of polygon almost room with file cabinets on one long end and three windows. We're in the basement, so there's sort of like garden windows, French windows. And there are four boxes spread across the windowsills. There are this black boxes, size of maybe a kid's shoebox, and they each have a number, one, two, three, four. There's a camera stand set up, there's not a camera, and then there's a red chair in the middle of this tiled grade floor room. So, so in this test, we, so we knew already that dogs are able, so even unskilled dogs, uh, untrained dogs are able to communicate about a hidden toy, and we wanted to know how it works. Uh, exactly, so how... Like, if your dog loses her tennis ball under the sofa and you ask her to go get her ball, she'll find a way to tell you that that's where her ball is and that it's stuck there, right? This is called the showing behavior. Breuer wanted to test that. You can only do this test with dogs who really love toys. Nana loves toys. Breuer came back with a yellow ball with a bell in it, and she threw it for Nana. So she's crazy about toys. This is what we need for this test. Then Breuer handed me the ball and told me to put it inside one of the numbered shoe boxes on the windowsill. I have to leave the room. And you show the ball to her and you put it in one of those boxes and don't tell And, and she can watch me, but she can yeah, know she where it is. Yeah, yeah. She will know. Okay. 
Okay, do you see I have this ball? Wait till she's gone. Putting it in box number three. Okay, you saw that. Roar called back from the next room. Yes, all set. She came back in and sat down on the red chair. She told Nana to sit. And then she asked her where the ball was. Nana, what's the ball? What is it? Please Text me, text me. Was Nana ran to the window and jumped up at box number three. Breuer got up and walked over to the box. Voila! The ball was inside that box. What Breuer's studying here is exactly which gestures dogs use to communicate with us. Sometimes they jump, sometimes they go to the box and bark, sometimes they'll look at the box, then look back at their owner, look at the box, then look back at their owner. One of my dogs does this when she wants to go outside. She doesn't like to bark. She's the smart one. She'll go to the back door, look at the door, look at me, look at the door, look at me, look at the door, until I finally get the message and open the door. That's showing behavior. That's one way dogs communicate with us. But how do they think? How do they think about smells? For one of her smell studies, Breuer came into the lab and made scent trails for the dogs to follow. We have a a track or a trail and in the end of the trail, there's not the thing that, that uh, was made by the trail. The dog enters the room, smells a favorite toy, say it's a red ball. The dog follows that smell, the trail left by the red ball. Sometimes at the end of that trail, the dog will find that red ball. Sometimes in some trials of the experiment, the dog will find something else, another favorite toy, say a yellow frisbee, that Breuer's switched out for the red ball. The important thing was here that both toys were really important to the dog, so they, they, they loved them equally. Here's what she was trying to find out. When a dog is following a scent trail, sniffing along, is he thinking, ooh, something good, something good, something good? Or is he thinking, ooh, my red ball, my red ball, my red ball? How would you find that out? What would happen if sniffing the scent of the red ball, that dog following that trail, found at the end of that trail, a yellow frisbee. They went there, and then when the toy was exchanged, they, they, they took the toy, but then they would just keep on searching for the real one. This would seem to suggest, then, that the dog isn't just following the trail thinking, good smell, good smell, good smell. The dog is following a specific smell, looking for a specific thing, and thinking something like, I was following the trail of my red ball, but what the hell? Here's my yellow frisbee. Breuer's experiment proved that dogs have an idea, a way of thinking about what they're smelling. Dr. Doolittle imagined that. Breuer proved it. Saying goodbye to Breuer, I remembered something my friend Elise had told me that she'd learned about on a podcast. Dogs can smell time, so they can tell it's morning because of the way the air and the smells in the summer, uh, and and they can tell evening because those things change, and that's the dog's way of interacting with the world. I love that. Smelling time. That was an idea I was really interested in. The totally unique experience of being a dog in the world. Elise dug up that podcast. It was an interview with a scientist named Alexander Horowitz. She'd written a book called Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell, and Know. I figured I should meet this Horowitz and headed to New York. I wanted to get a kind of dog's eye view, or I guess a dog's nose's scent of the dog park.
You may think this is a lot of globetrotting for a podcast episode about dogs, but have you read the Dr. Doolittle stories? The man is half the time gallivanting across the planet looking for obscure animals, like the giant sea snail. One time, he even rides a luna moth to the moon. I didn't take a luna moth to the moon, but I did take Amtrak to New York to meet Alexander Horwitz, a Barnard professor and head of the Dog Cognition Lab. She's got a fantastic podcast about dogs called Off Leash. Her basic research question is, what is it like to be a dog? She's interested in how dogs smell. That's how she figured out dogs can smell time. But she started out as a fact checker at The New Yorker. It was really, really fun. Yeah. It was a great exercise in thinking about knowledge and truth. Yeah. What counts as truth. Horowitz came at dog research by way of fact checking for one writer in particular. I was checking for Oliver Sacks, and I thought, oh, cognitive science. Yeah. Oliver Sacks, the neurologist, wrote about how people think, what it means to be a human. He wrote books like The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, about a disorder where you see things as things that are not there. Sacks had this tremendous moral imagination, combined with his own scientific mind and then his extraordinary gifts as a writer. He could picture and then conjure on the page how an entirely different being experiences the world. He inspired generations of scientists and writers, including Horowitz. So she left The New Yorker and went to graduate school. I was interested in a, in a metacognitive skill called theory of mind, which is an ability that humans develop typically at about age three-ish, where we start thinking or realizing others have opinions and knowledge different than we do which is obviously foremost in our cognition. There hadn't been any evidence in these experimental approaches with non-humans of theory of mind, but um, it seemed to me something that you would expect to see in a lot of social animals. Some mm -hmm. Because sociability requires having some sense of what others are. Yeah. One kind of evidence for a theory of mind is play. Playing, you have to have a theory of mind. Horowitz decided she needed to watch animals play. So I was looking for playing animals, seeing if I could see anything in their interactions, which would tell me about their minds. But animals don't just play on demand, typically, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And often they might want to disappear from view to play. It probably took me about six months before I realized taking her out three times a day to play with other dogs. I should study dogs. They're playing. <laughs> it was a eureka moment. Aha, dogs. But she wasn't alone. Suddenly we all found we had this very good subject. They were good because they're convenient, but they were good because they're also smart. They have a lot of social cognition, meaning they uh, are skilled socially. They're able to get information from others. Um, they're very cooperative, not just with other dogs, but interspecifically with humans. And so a field uh, of dog cognition kind of started blooming in the early 2000s and now actually is quite prolific, right? There are hundreds of articles written every year on the field, whereas when I began there were, there were none. Horowitz took hundreds of hours of footage of dogs playing and analyzed them second by second, breaking them down into episodes of play, a unit of play she called a bout, like in boxing, a bout. Talking about dogs playing is like singing about bicycle riding. We had to go watch it. So we packed up and headed out to a dog park along the Hudson River. Now they're staring at each other, right? There could be something, yep. So that's like an exaggerated approach. 
And there's a play bow under the bench. And sort of wandering off, but this dog is wagging, but I don't know if she's gonna engage. She hiding yeah. under her owner? She's like tentative with the... Definitely keeping in touch, more touch with the owner. Not maybe the most confident dog. I'm surprised because he did go mount right away. Started. She reminded me of a sports commentator. Now look, here's another, here's another little bout. So <laughs> you have a dog on their back. You can really take advantage of that and the good player will not. We'll just see he's doing little feigning, mm-hmm. but he's not all going all in like he could. Mm-hmm. And waits, and then she jumps up. That's a nice little bout. So there, there's a lot of turn taking there. Here, like, I do a move, you do a move. I knew I was fortified with new information to bring back to the dog park with my dogs Greta and Daisy. I also couldn't help ventriloquizing. The tall doodle's looking for a playmate. <laughs> I could see. He's could... <laughs> longingly over the gate. Who's coming in? I only have retrievers in here. Help. Real dog science isn't ignoring everything common sense tells you about the reality of animal consciousness so you can experiment on animals. It's following your own curiosity, your own love of dogs in this case. Out of curiosity, just to know but also for the same reason that Hugh Lofting created Dr. Doolittle while watching horses being slaughtered on Flanders Fields. I want to know what it's like to be an animal in order to treat them better. Every road you drive down in the town of Killingworth, Connecticut, you come across another farm. Horse farm, goat farm, sheep farm, goose farm, duck farm. Hugh Lofting, the creator of Dr. Doolittle, loved this place. Near the end of his life, he decided he wanted to be buried here. He died in 1947. His body was shipped back to Connecticut. When Ben and I went there with my friend Elise Broach, we went in search of his grave, trudging across a field, watching out for ticks and poison ivy. All right, three leaves green and shiny, right? <laughs> um, yeah, like that. With the owners of Lofting's old house, we crossed a field of very tall grass. <laughs> Ben, I feel that this is very Last Archive right now. Yes. We'd nearly come to the end of our madcap adventure, hunting for the evidence of the age-old knowledge that animals have minds and souls. Finally, we spied the cemetery. The back corner. Okay, so it's a granite marker, like a small rectangular, almost like a child-sized coffin baby-sized coffin and says Hugh Lofting, 1886 to 1947. Maybe we should look up how to pronounce the Latin. Hugh, so it'll be quis, right? I mean, I think quo, quis, quis separavit. I like how you just rolled the R just for the hell of it. (laughs) As if she knew. (laughs) (laughs) Carolyn, who lives in Lofting's old house, comes by every once in a while and leaves animals here by Lofting's grave. Plastic animals. Elise helped me out with the Latin. Quis separabit. Who shall separate us? It's the motto of the Irish Guards, the regiment Lofting fought with during the First World War, when so many animals, human and horse and dog alike, died needlessly. Who shall separate us? I loved that for Lofting's grave marker. For a very long time, people have believed in a great separation, a wall dividing humans from all other animals. Weirdly, 
Children's literature is one place where that wall gets broken down. And lately, it's being broken down by animal science. The more scientists study animals, the more we know what animals know. What do dogs know? We still don't really know. But the more we do know, the clearer it becomes that less separates us than some people used to think. The Last Archive is written and hosted by me, Jill Lepore. It's produced by Sophie Crane, Ben Nadefhafri, and Lucy Sullivan. Our editors are Julia Barton and Sophie Crane, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Jake Gorski is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonet. Our research assistant is Mia Hazra. Our foolproof players are Elise Broach and Robert Ricotta. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. The Last Archive is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content like The Last Archivist, a limited series just for subscribers, and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. If you like the show, please remember to rate, share, and review. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jill Lepore. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory and why some still believe the earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.